0: The State Attorney General's Office has put the British Auction House Bonhams on notice. At issue, items dating back to the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy that the state maintains may belong to the government of Hawaii. Among the items is a royal standard, a personal flag for Queen Liliuokalani, which is up for auction to the highest bidder. The flag in question is being advertised as part of the collection of Colonel John Soper, who was with the provisional government that overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. The collection includes Soper's swords, his portrait, and Hawaiian collectibles. But it's the Queen Standard, which the auction house described as what flew over Washington Place during the overthrow, that has prompted the state to file this notice of claim. State Archivist Adam Jansen joins us live this morning to talk about this unusual situation. Good morning, Adam.
1: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So, gosh, uh, tell us, I mean, how did you folks find out about this?
1: Well, we were very fortunate that one of our most passionate followers on social media brought this to our attention because, you know, normally this is not something that we track on a global scale with all of our day-to-day. And as we looked at, at particularly Her Majesty's Royal Standard, you know, we looked at some of the other objects and it really struck us that, you know, some of these things, they belong to the people of Hawaii and they need to come back home.
0: And so we've
1: got, what, manuscripts? That is correct. So there, there are quite a few uh, reports and letters from General Soper, who was the acting commander in chief of the armed forces of the provisional government and later the republic, writing his reports, writing to other ministers, issuing orders to the troops on how they're going to be deployed. You know, these things are all very clearly done in his office as the commander in chief, and as such, you know, those belong to the people because they're. There's information in there that we cannot find in any of the other records that we do have from that time period. And so from our perspective, this is an opportunity that is is being denied the people of Hawai'i to gain a better understanding of one of unquestionably the most historic events that has has shaped Hawai'i.
0: And as, you know, Hawai'i's uh, public archives, I mean, you are the repository for government documents.
1: Well, and I would argue not just government documents. We were founded in 1905 to collect all public archives. And as such, you know, it's our kuleana to serve as the keepers of public memory. You know, those events and individuals and organizations that shaped Hawaii's history and need to be remembered in perpetuity is is really our focus to make sure that they are preserved and are accessible to the people.
0: And so... You know, as you look at these these documents, these records, you know, I think it's, it's the royal standard, right, that there's a lot of, it's very symbolic, and a lot of emotion, uh, you know, maybe wrapped up in that, just because, you know, if it is what they say it is, um, it, it's very important to the people here.
1: Oh, there's no question. That is an irreplaceable artifact of Hawaii's history, and it really, as a representation of the sovereign, you know, that, Doesn't belong to any one individual. Uh, The the whole reason we brought this case is, you know, my greatest fear is that it's bought by some private individual or some institution in Europe or in the Far East that we will we will never get to see this again. It's going to be locked away and denied, you know, public viewing.
0: And so this. Uh, notice of claim this letter that went out to the uh, the auction house I mean I know it it just went out uh, but you know have we heard back yet
1: we, we have not heard back yet I I do believe that they're going to follow up today to, to make sure that at least the auction house acknowledges receipt uh, they got both email and it's, it's going out in physical mail as well because this is very time critical and and we're so fortunate it was brought to our attention a little bit earlier because the auction's happening on the twenty fifth. And and if we can't do something before then, again, we have no idea and may not ever know who who won the auction and where it's going to ultimately wind
0: up. So this is not yet a well what people might know as a, a an order, a cease and desist order, right? We haven't yet gone to court.
1: That is correct. You know, we, we are moving in that direction. We're getting the paperwork ready to file if in, in the unfortunate event that they refuse to recognize the a questionable provenance of some of these items that we can ask the court to intervene while it is determined uh, because again if we don't act now we have no idea ultimately where it's going to wind up
0: and we should note that October is um, archives month it it is
1: and and the whole purpose of archives month is to increase public awareness of what archives are and what role we serve in society and i think this is is really one of those best illustrations that for us it's about maintaining the integrity of those records and the public accessibility to them and while in a day-to-day basis that means protecting the records under our care that also means looking beyond our institution to say you know, what other records should be here that are not other records that may have been taken home by, you know, government officials and upon their passing, just passed on to their heirs who squirrel them away in a, in a closet. So for us to be able to do something very proactive like this and hopefully bring these things home to the people really illustrates why archives exist in the first place.
0: So what parallels can you draw with the situation that's playing out nationally?
1: Well, and, and it's, it's interesting because while these records are 130 some odd years old, you know, the same issue exists today at the federal level. You know, the National Archives has engaged the DOJ to go and try to retrieve very similar types of records that a former federal official, the head of the federal government, decided to take home with him. These records do not belong to the individuals who either wrote them or received them. They belong to the government and by extension are kept so that the people can understand how their government is functioning. Because as we like to say, the foundation of democracy in America is government accountability to the people. And how is the government held accountable? Well, through the records that they keep and being able to access those records. You know, you only have to look at the federal level and how many lawsuits are being flying around over the last 12 months about, can I access these records, can you not? You know, the Secret Service deleting text messages and why that's such a horrible thing because it denies people an understanding of how their government is operating for them.
0: And you know, uh, we don't have much time left, but uh, we have 30 seconds left, but you've got an event coming up to mark uh, Archives Month.
1: We do. If anybody's interested in Hawaiian history or how archives work, tomorrow, Saturday, one o'clock in the State Auditorium, we're having a lecture called Dishes and Diplomacy, David Kalakawa at the table talking about how King Kalakaua used food to help cement diplomatic efforts with foreign nations. So if you can, please join us, 1 o'clock, Saturday, State State Capitol Auditorium.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Adam. We appreciate your time today.
1: It's always a pleasure, Catherine. Thank you.
0: That was State Archivist uh, Adam Jensen talking to us about items belonging to the people of Hawaii now up for auction.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening the Doris Duke Theater with art house films from around the world, live performances, and more reflecting Hawaii's cultures and communities. HonoluluMuseum.org theater.
0: It is time now for today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats politics and opinion editor, Chad Blair, here to talk about the state's efforts to ease Hawaii's nursing shortage. Good morning, Chad.
3: Good morning, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday, and best wishes to all you folks at HPR raising money to stay alive. Good for <laughs> <Yes>. you.
0: <laughs> and you're here to talk about uh, a story that uh, Cassio Donio wrote up for you.
3: Right. Speaking of staying alive, and it's it's a it's a positive story. The, the governor uh, governor David Inge, just yesterday had a press conference, and he announced that nearly two million dollars, one point seven five million. Uh, precisely will be released in state funds uh, to the University of Hawaii system to create uh, 39 uh, nursing instructor positions. This is at the Manoa campus, the UH Hilo campus, but also some of the community colleges. This is going to double the intake uh, of nursing students, uh, several hundred more is the estimate. Uh, Because of the severe, uh, not only nursing shortage, but shortage of instructors, UH UH actually had to... uh, Turned down 65 percent of applicants last year, even though, as has been widely reported, including in Civil Beat, about the severe nursing shortage here in the state of Hawaii.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was stunning to learn that, you know, to hear the uh, Healthcare Associated Association of Hawaii saying, yep, uh, you know, because when the nurses make more than the faculty, there's mm-hmm. not much incentive uh, to, uh, to 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 teach the students.
3: Right. And recruitment and retention have long been challenges, very similar to teachers, right? The same system that we have with, because they are teachers, but for the public school system. But, you know, it was COVID, the pandemic, which we're not completely out of, uh, that really exacerbated the problem. A lot of folks uh, in the nursing profession left. They retired or they left for the mainland, or or they they reported that they were considering it. A number of surveys indicated it wasn't just in Hawaii, it was also a national problem. Burnout, right? Uh, Trying to take care of their own families uh, during the the pandemic. Very stressful time. Uh, It's interesting that the governor at his press conference noted that this funding for more instructors uh, is really a matter of public safety uh, to take care of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've got vacancies for a thousand nurses. And it's stunning. And we saw earlier, right, uh, the governor had to issue that emergency order to bring in flying nurses.
3: Right. Right. Exactly. And that that figure about 1,000 vacancies, that's coming from the State Department of Labor and Industrial Relations. Uh, And the demand is expected to be at least 110 positions every year, uh, through the year 2030. Uh, there's other statistics that Cassie cites in her story, none of them particularly hopeful, except for the, the dollar figure for the new instructors um, and the, the number of positions to be filled as well. Uh, so that's, that's an, a good story. We should add, by the way, uh, there's some other developments. Uh, David Lassner, the UH president, was quoted in the story and a number of nursing officials. There, there's actually going to be a master's uh, offered in nursing education and leadership uh, through UH, there'll be a graduate certificate program as well. That's not until fall of 2023, but that's also on the horizon. And of course, you know, generally speaking, the, the higher the degree, the, the better the pay. Uh, and so that's another development we should single out.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we, I just, it, I just think it's amazing that we had to turn away those students um, last mm. year. A, a very sad. Right. Um,
3: during a crisis, right? Yes, no less. <laughs> During a time. Yeah, and frankly, here's another issue where we've had troubles with uh, recruitment and retention, and that's police officers and mm-hmm. another high-stress position. And, of course, HPD, the counties have been working to try and, and fill those pukas as well. It's not easy to get up and move to Hawaii uh, with the cost of living being what it is. Uh, but at least in nursing, uh, some some good news today, or yesterday, but we're running it today, getting a lot of hits on our website. People encouraged about this development.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope that uh, you and I don't end up in the hospital and, and need <laughs> care. So stay healthy, Chad. <laughs> I'll work at it. Thanks, Catherine. All righty. Thanks so much. <laughs> that was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Cassie O'Donoghue's full story, head to civilbeat.org.
2: Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor, Anchor Systems Hawaii.
0: You know, later tonight, female athletes from the University of Hawaii are gathering for a special event billed as Wahine on the Rise. The sold out dinner is to honor the 50th anniversary of Title IX and the advancement of equity or equality in education. Uh, Act, which was spearheaded by the late Congresswoman Patsy Ming. Today, we're going to revisit a critical vote that almost reversed the effort. There was an amendment to Title IX called the Casey Amendment, which would have gutted critical verbiage that could have changed the outcome of funding to women's athletic programs. It's the subject of a New York Times documentary short released this summer by Oscar award winning independent producer Ben Proudfoot.
4: So I was making, making a film, The Queen of Basketball, which is about Lucy Harris, who is the first and only woman officially drafted into the NBA. And her life story was, you know, inextricably connected to the passage of Title IX, which spawned the creation uh, of the women's team at her local college in Mississippi. So I was trying to track down, you know, which photo or clip I wanted to use for the establishment of Title IX. And it kind of led me to Richard Nixon being the guy who signed it. And I was like, it just doesn't add up. Everything I know about Richard Nixon, that he would be the champion of women athletes. So I just dug, a little, like, not that much deeper. And it was pretty clear that, you know, there were others um, who were in charge of, of the writing and defending of Paline that were not Richard Nixon. I don't think he had anything to do with it, really. And the name Patsy Mink rose to the top. And I believe she's actually the name take for the actual legislation, the Patsy Mink Quality and Education Act. And as I was researching Patsy, I came across a story, amazing story, really, about this critical moment when Title IX was being defended from the male sports lobby that wanted to gut it, and her daughter, Wendy, got into a life-threatening car accident on the day of the vote, and she was whisked away from Congress. And as I read about this, I just thought, my God, this is such a dramatic story, and thought it would be a great film. Wendy was the great storyteller in recounting this event that happened you know, almost 50 years ago in which this, this key vote was interrupted because she had gotten into a car accident in upstate New York. And the vote that Patsy left the room for actually lost by one vote, Patsy's vote. And so if that verdict had stood, It was later, they later brought it to the revote. But if that vote had stood, physical education would have been carved out of Title IX and sort of that integrity of Title IX's efficacy in the athletics realm would have been corrupted and probably many more dominoes would have fallen. So it was a very dramatic moment that Wendy took us through that really was a huge moment in American history that she was unwittingly (laughs) a part of.
0: And so your documentary, where does that live?
4: You can watch it on the New York Times, and you can watch it on the New York Times YouTube channel as well for free.
0: that was independent documentary producer Ben Proudfoot talking about the short film on Title IX that he produced. We're going to share with you a segment of the film, which features Wendy Mink, whose car crash in her Pinto in upstate New York, almost derailed Title IX as we know it now. Here's Wendy explaining how her mother missed that critical vote on the key amendment.
5: The future of equality in some large way was on the table that day. The vote gets underway. Meanwhile, I got in the car. an oncoming car crashed into us Phone call comes to her on the floor Your daughter's unconscious in intensive care I got the brunt of impact. The ultimate family versus career moment. That my mother was even in the hospital with me, given the stakes of what was happening in Washington, D.C., seems Sort of insane to me. The Casey Amendment wins 212 to 211. It lost by one vote. My mom's vote. Yes. The windshield flew at me. All the glass fell. It cut my face. Here. Yeah. It's all along here, side of my mouth. I'm sure the male athletics lobby were celebrating on the night of the 16th, but um, things were happening. Her colleagues in Congress, especially Congresswoman Ebzug of New York, who was a good friend, fought in her absence. Many expressed concern for what was gonna happen to me even a substantial number of pro-Casey people. It was the speaker's decision, Speaker Carl Albert of Oklahoma. He always said, Patsy and I see eye to eye because they were both short. I mean, he was a short man. Given my mother's abrupt departure, thought about it, considered it and decided Revote. Many on the other side came around. So in the end, 215 to 178 in favor of deleting the Casey amendment from the education appropriations bill. My mom won, girls and women won, feminists won. No person, in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. That is called Title IX. getting into into school and getting into the professions I couldn't find a job and when all of my contemporaries at home say oh my goodness what you've done to politics at home and you know I wish we had never heard of Patsy Mink I'll say well it's because of all of your attitudes that drove me to politics if you'd given me a job when I came home from law school I would have been very happy <laughs> I am the child of someone who, made a huge difference for women and girls in education. She taught me change might be slow, but changes can happen. I did screw it up with the pinto, right, for two days.
2: Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Namea Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training.
0: You know, we heard from former Second Lady Vivian Iona, wife of Republican gubernatorial candidate Duke Iona yesterday, in our curiosity about the woman who could be the next first lady. Well, today we hear from Jamie Green, wife of Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, who's running for that top job. Jamie comes from a family of educators, but is a lawyer by trade, graduating from the University of Hawaii Richardson School of Law. She met her husband while working at the state capital.
6: My focus ended up being family law and child advocacy. And so for a while, I did practice family law, focusing on the best interests of the child but I decided that I really wanted to do more policy work. And so I went over to the legislature and I worked for Senator Chun Oakland. She was the chair of Human Services Committee at the time. And actually that's how I ended up meeting Josh. So he was elected. And then after I had just finished working with Senator Chun Oakland's office and so I was around the Capitol and that's how I met him. Yeah. And so, gosh, I don't know, if he does win the general election, have you given much thought as to what issues you might elevate? So my background definitely and my heart is in children's issues and children's advocacy. And so, in general, something to know about the way that Josh and I are as a team, we, you know, for all different kinds of issues, he asks for my opinion and, you know, Like even when he was Lieutenant Governor, when the American Samoa trip came up, I had been in his office a lot, just helping him with different kinds of things. And so when that happened, and he's like, should we go to American Samoa and help with the measles crisis? And how's that gonna be possible? And so I was there to help him kind of facilitate and figure out the logistics of going there, because we really only had maybe two days, one or two days, because they were they had asked for help, and they were like, actually, can you come on Friday? You know, like, they were gonna close the country down, and they wanted it immediately, and we, we needed to find a plane, we needed to find volunteers, We it was just a lot of logistics. Anyway, so I helped him on that, and it wasn't something that I would say, you know, national health crisis is my platform, it's mm-hmm. just something that had come up through his office, and so I helped him with that. But in general, I think if he does win, my focus would be in advocating for children and families. And I think that I would want to focus probably on disadvantaged youth as well as Native Hawaiian children. And I think because we have worked with the Hawaii Food Bank through the Lieutenant Governor's Office, officially the Lieutenant Governor's Office is the honorary co-chairs of the state food bank drive and so in getting to know that organization and the issues that they are involved in i hadn't realized this and i'm not sure if you know that hawaii has the second highest rate of child hunger in the country and to me that is just absolutely unacceptable like to know we're the second highest i I just can't even believe that's possible and so that's definitely something that I would want to continue to work on with them whether it is spreading awareness or helping you know they have so many great food programs they have like school backpacks that they do and they have different things within the school system that they do that I would like to be a part of I think that I would also like to help with uh, childhood literacy. I just, I believe in education. I believe in having all kids. I, I do think that as a mother, when I was raising my kids when they were little and I asked everyone like, what do I do? You know, what's really important? Everyone, and I have a lot of teachers in my family and everyone across the board said, read to your children. That's all you have to do because I'm like, do I need to get them into certain programs or you know, do I need to start their preschool earlier? You know, whatever, what, what makes the most difference? And everyone said, read to your kids. You know? And so I, I'm taking that and I know that this is an important thing that Josh is looking at also is providing resources to the schools to um, really boost literacy in younger age groups to help them. Uh, develop in other ways in the future. And then I think because I, I am Native Hawaiian and I feel a responsibility to advocate and I, I'm making a difference, a distinction here between being an activist and an advocate. And I really see myself more as an advocate. I really hope that I can bring Hawaiian voices to the table. And I don't think that that has necessarily been there for a long time. And um I'm hoping that we can develop a Native Hawaiian cultural center. So I've had that brought to my attention that we have an Okinawan cultural center, we have a Japanese cultural center, we have a Filipino cultural center, and we don't have a Native Hawaiian cultural center. And I I think that we need that, you know? So those are a couple of issues that I've been looking at that I've been thinking about being involved in.
0: Well, I was fortunate enough to talk to former First Lady Gina Rioshi, and you know she served as First Lady for 12 years. Now we have term limits. Uh, but it was really interesting you know she put together a book and it was just fascinating to kind of see just the different uh, issues that she was able to elevate you know um, while she was there at washington Place. so i don't know any any just thoughts in general about the position as first lady and the power that you have that you know you you can make a difference
6: i am i'm really just excited about the opportunity if josh is able to prevail in november and I think that as Lieutenant Governor, I've been seeing through his office that there's so many issues out there. So I think it's been really a blessing to be able to be involved and to get to know a lot more about our community members and about issues affecting a lot of our community. I think even though Josh has been you know, a legislator for a long time, the breadth of what we've been exposed to during his time as LG has really opened my eyes to the possibilities and the opportunities that are out there to really make a difference and to do good works and so like I said I'm sure I'll learn a lot more once we actually be in the position again if he wins but there's just so much out there that I think we are just really excited that we'd have the opportunity to be a part of.
0: Well, you know, I guess, too, during this time, during the pandemic, I mean, the needs were just so great and it really turned everything, you know, on on its head. So, yeah, I mean, just like you said, with the food bank and with hunger, where maybe these are issues that you wouldn't have thought so much before,
6: but it, it was just heightened. There's so many needs out there that we kind of think about, like we just, You know, even before the pandemic, we had been working with the food bank because we were the chairs of the food drive. And so we're like, you know, hunger is important. We want people to participate. We want people to donate. But then, like you said, during COVID, it's just the needs were so heightened that it's like, we all have to work together. This isn't just like, oh, if it comes to mind, you know, please help. This was like, let us all please, get together as a community and and make sure that we can help each other. And I think there's a lot of issues like that that were exposed during COVID where the needs, you know, for mental health care for for children's mental health, for homeless issues, for I mean everything that was just kind of all there that we thought were issues that we need to to be involved in, all of it just really became heightened or everyone just saw what was going on and I think that hopefully because of that everyone in our community in our state can really come together to to make a difference.
0: that was Jamie Green, wife of Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, mother of two children ages 15 and 11 who could be the first young children to live at the governor's mansion if Green prevails in the general election we hope the segments with the prospective first ladies gives you another angle on the race for hawaii's governor you can check out our election coverage on our website hawaiipublicradio.org <laughs>
2: Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com.